Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nature in an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome to the 600th episode of the Nature Podcast. This week, we're talking about improving post-earthquake predictions and the issues with deep learning in artificial intelligence. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. On the 24th of August 2016, a magnitude 6.2 earthquake struck central Italy. The earthquake caused the death of 297 people, but this event wasn't the end of the quakes that struck the region. Two months later, the area was hit by an even bigger magnitude 6.6 earthquake. Many buildings and important monuments were destroyed by this larger earthquake, but fortunately the hardest hit areas had been mostly evacuated following the previous tremors. When an earthquake hits, there's always a chance that a larger one could follow. But working out the probability of that happening is not easy. To get an idea, seismologists look back through records to see what happened after previous earthquakes and use this data to estimate the likelihood that an even bigger earthquake will follow an initial one. But such events aren't common. For instance, after a moderate earthquake, the chance of an even larger one happening is estimated to be around 5%. Most of the time, people then don't take immediate action because 5% chance is a little bit hard to say what to really do with in a certain time. So I don't think people are totally unprepared, but they're not well enough prepared. This is Stefan Wiemer, a seismologist at ETH Zurich. He's been trying to work out if, after an earthquake hits, there's a way to better predict if something bigger is coming. And this week in Nature, he's co-authored a paper that offers a way to make predictions about upcoming tremors more certain by using something called the B-value. 
That's a parameter that seismologists know well, and they can measure it with a certain degree of precision. And it's also related to the stress level. So when you have higher stresses in the Earth crust, in a very simplified way, you expect that this B value is actually lower. And when you have lower stresses, so it's not so critically stressed, you have higher B values. After an earthquake hits, there's a lot of seismic activity in the region. By using this to find the B value in historical data, Stefan was able to find a pattern. If the B value increased after an earthquake, then the likelihood of a big follow-up event would be lower. But the more interesting thing is really that the sequences that then are unusual, that have a lower B value where this parameter drops, they are then the ones that are followed by even bigger events. This predictable change in B value allowed Stefan to create a traffic light system to suggest the threat of a bigger follow-up earthquake. As you might expect, red means that a bigger quake coming is more likely. If the B value really has dropped by more than 10% from before, we would call it a red event. If it has increased by more than 10%, we'll call it a green phase. And sort of in between, we call it an orange phase where it's still a bit undecided how things will develop. Stefan tested this traffic light system on data from 58 previous earthquakes and found it was pretty good at predicting what was going to happen next. From these events, we only missed one, so that's good news uh, that we we didn't have right. So in total, we call it an accuracy, a classification accuracy of 95%, which is a pretty good value, I would say. Stefan also showed that this system can be employed quickly. Sometimes, as with the case in Italy, these quakes can be months apart. But even when they were hours apart, the traffic light system still worked. But of course, Stefan's traffic light system has only been tested on archive data, would have to be tried out in the messy reality of a real earthquake, where quality data may be hard to come by. Emily Brodsky, a seismologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who wasn't associated with this work, thinks we won't really know whether Stefan's approach works until it's used on a real earthquake. I think that, you know, as is common in earthquake science, they had to base this analysis on very, very few examples. And so it's really not clear yet whether or not it's going to work. Stefan agrees that the real test will be with an actual earthquake. He also points out that not everywhere in the world is currently equipped to use these traffic light predictions, as it requires a comprehensive seismic monitoring network. He suggests that there are only really good enough networks present in California and Japan and perhaps some parts of Europe. Also, although the traffic light system got it right on almost all of the historical data, the occasions where a bigger earthquake followed a smaller event were rare. So there were only a few red events in the data set. Emily points out that this is a small number of test cases. I mean, basically they had two cases that it really appeared to work for in historical retrospective analysis. They had a third case to Hoku earthquake where it might have worked, but it wasn't clear. The other major limitation of Stefan's system is that even if it can predict that a bigger quake will happen, when it will happen is completely unknown. However, Stefan hopes that this will help inform the incredibly difficult decisions that authorities have to make following an earthquake. 
decisions for civil protection uh, is a difficult thing because you need to consider many things for people, right? What are the buildings that are there? Are the buildings safe in the first place or not so safe? What's the population density? What are the alternatives? Is it cold and snowy outside or not? Can you put people somewhere? So it's uh, civil defense decisions are very difficult and we don't do them. We only can give input for civil defense that may help them to take these decisions. And the best way we can help them is to describe what we know in, in probabilities or scenarios of things to come in the future so that we can then say, okay, this is a more likely scenario. It's more likely that there will be another strong event up to the north in the next so many days and weeks. So take this into consideration when you take your decision. That was Stefan Wiemer of ETH Zurich. You also heard from Emily Brodsky of the University of California, Santa Cruz. You can find Stefan's paper, along with a News and Views article written by Emily, over at nature.com. Later in the show, we'll be discussing the winners of this year's Nobel Prizes. That's coming up in the news chat. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Anna Nagel. The Central American country of Costa Rica has recorded outbreaks of vampire bat-transmitted rabies every year since 1985. Rabies is a lethal viral disease that affects both humans and livestock, and the vampire bat is a significant reservoir of the virus. Not much is known about how rabies persists in Costa Rican vampire bat colonies. To get a better idea, researchers studied genetic sequences taken from domestic animals in the country that had died of the virus over a 14-year period. They found that the virus is maintained in the country by repeated introductions of different viral lineages from North or South American countries that circulate briefly in bat populations before disappearing. The team behind the work suggests that these recurring rabies introductions mean that current culling efforts in Costa Rica are unlikely to prevent rabies transmission. Read more on that over at Proceedings of the Royal Society B. The pink octopuses of the northern Pacific Ocean follow a simple rule. The deeper they live, the wartier they are. Scientists had puzzled over the dramatically different skin textures seen in the octopods, which had led some to doubt whether they even belonged to the same species. To test a theory that geography was somehow at the root of these differences, scientists analysed 50 specimens collected from the region, noting every wart and sucker from the top of the creature's heads to the ends of their arms. They found that octopuses living in shallower waters were generally larger and had smoother skin, while deep-water dwellers were smaller, wartier, and had fewer arm suckers. DNA analysis revealed that all were members of the same species, so quite why these differences exist is still something of a mystery, but could have something to do with differences in oxygen saturation or food availability. Dive into that research in the Bulletin of Marine Science. Whether you're aware of them or not, AIs are everywhere. They help recommend you songs or movies that you might like. They're the brains in your smart speakers, and they can even recognise your face to unlock your phone. In many cases, AIs work via a process called deep learning. Using this technique, they can recognise patterns, as freelance writer William Douglas Heaven explains. 
I mean, let's talk about cats and dogs. You show it lots of images of cats and dogs. It will recognize commonalities that all the cat images have versus the dog images. So when you show it a new image, it will be able to output either this is a cat or this is a dog. William has written a news feature for Nature this week about how some of these deep learning systems can be quite brittle. Reporter Jeff Marsh caught up with him and started by asking him for some examples of where these systems have gone awry. So it was only four or five years ago, a paper made a splash that showed that just tweaking a few pixels in an image of a sloth, and it will tell you that it's a Ferrari. And often with these examples, you find that it is more certain of its wrong answer than it was about its right answer when it was just an undoctored image of a sloth. And that's what researchers call those kind of rogue images, adversarial examples. Adversarial examples, yes. Right. Um, People have also printed patterns on glasses and hats to make facial recognition systems uh, not work. That's a good one if you're on the run. That is a good one if you're on the run. Um, Some people have even shown that you don't need to doctor an image at all, that some images look just strange enough to the AI that it completely gets it wrong. So one nice example is a dragonfly sitting on some sort of textured pattern and it says it's a manhole cover. It's focusing on the textured pattern in the background rather than the dragonfly. Silly robots. Silly robots. Um, They're silly to us because what we pick out as the salient features of an image may be completely irrelevant to how it's learnt to recognise a pattern. Right. We instantly look at an image of a thing like a dragonfly and think that's a dragonfly. We don't even sort of focus on the, the background pattern. But the neural network doesn't have a sense of you know what object in the image is the important thing. One research group just put little rectangular stickers on a stop sign. They showed that a neural network could be fooled into completely misreading it as um, speed limit 45. There is something enjoyable, a sort of sniffy superiority that we have of laughing at silly robots and AI doing stuff wrong. But when you put it like that, actually, there's nothing funny about this. These these uh, fallibilities, if you like, are wide open to sabotage by kind of you know malicious entities. Yes. So it seems that the, the people at the heart of this, the people really working on these systems, I think, are aware of the shortcomings. Where it becomes dangerous is given the wave of hype that we have behind AI and machine learning and deep learning in, in particular. Companies, businesses are you know, picking up these systems, you know, thinking they're some kind of you know, magic bullet to solve whatever problem they have. And I think it's at that level of application that perhaps people aren't fully aware of how brittle they are, how they can work very well in 99% of cases. But you know, that one case where something suddenly throws it off could be disastrous. I mean, these things are trained by just feeding them, you know, thousands and thousands of images or examples of sound or whatever it is that they, they're trained on. Um, do we need to just be doing that better? Or is there something just inherently kind of breakable about that fundamental system of learning? Well, it does depend on who you ask. One way to train them is to sort of build in the adversarial attack to the training so that you not only generate it on um, these millions of images, you'd also have an adversary generating the spoofing images and you throw those into the training set. So you sort of expose it to the the spoofing images uh, from the start. But it's sort of like an arms race because there's nothing stopping you know, a new adversary coming along and saying, oh, all I need to do to fool this newly trained system is to generate you know, new kinds of examples. How can we augment deep neural networks to be a bit more human? The early attempts to build AI systems were to sort of encode the way humans think Uh, with mathematical or logical rules. The machine learning paradigm completely undercut that by shoving that to one side and just saying, we're just going to build the structure of 
these neural networks. And with enough data and enough computing power, which was only possible in the last you know, 10 or 15 years, which is why we've had this revolution, from a blank slate, it will teach itself. So the idea now, now is to some, maybe bring back some of these this rule-based thinking and combine it with machine learning. So it's not starting from just a blank slate. You can also do this by using things that your deep neural network has already learned. If we can reuse some of that uh, previous learning in uh, an approach generally known as transfer learning, then we have an advantage. And of course, this is, again, something that humans clearly do somehow. I mean, if, if you and I had never seen a giraffe before and we suddenly see a giraffe on safari, then you're not going to need to see you know hundreds or thousands of examples of that giraffe before we recognize you know, the second one. That's probably because we have a very good idea of what animals are. We've seen lots and lots of previous animals. And so when we're seeing that giraffe, we're not just seeing something bizarre and new and random where we have to sort of collect all the information in the scene and make sense of it. It's an animal. Having said everything that we've said, what's the verdict for deep learning? Are, are people saying it's it's so vulnerable, it's so brittle? Do the risks outweigh the, the, the benefits or are, or are they here to stay? Well, there are definitely some detractors who you know think they've had their time, and we're not going to get to you know our vision of of AI, you know, human like reasoning with the current paradigm. But there aren't actually any you know real suggestions or real alternatives that have been shown to be anywhere near as successful as as deep neural networks. You know, detractors might say, well, this is you know a short term fix to a bigger problem, but we're waiting for them to show us something better. But it should put the brakes on the hype. There should be more awareness of the brittleness of these systems, especially as they become more widely used for more important, life-changing decision-making. That was William Douglas Heaven. You can find out more about the issues facing AI over at nature.com, which is where you'll find William's feature. Finally on the show, it's time for the news chat. And this week, it's Nobel's week. And I'm joined by Flora Graham of Nature Briefing fame. Hi, Flora. Hi, great to be here. Well, great to have you. And it's an exciting week. I thought we'd start off by talking about the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And for this prize, everybody held their breath. That's right. The prize was all about oxygen and how the cells in your body respond to when oxygen levels go up and down. As you can imagine, this is relevant for all kinds of things from when you play sports to when you have a stroke and even how cancer tumors grow. So I guess the first thing people will be thinking is, who are the winners of this prize? Well, this prize was split three ways. There was a cancer researcher, William Kalin, and a physician scientist, Peter Radcliffe, and a geneticist, Greg Semenza. And it's interesting to note that the three also won another very prestigious award, the Lasker Award, back in 2016 for the same work. So this prize was split almost in two. So two of the researchers worked on something called erythropoietin. That's right. It was Semenza and Ratcliffe who studied that hormone. And that is a hormone that turns out to be crucial for stimulating the production of red blood cells. And that's in response to low levels of oxygen. And Kaylin, what was his work on? Well, he's a cancer researcher and he was looking into a genetic syndrome um, that tends to make people more susceptible to cancer. And what he found was the hormone that Semenza and Radcliffe investigated was related to why these cancer tumors seem to grow more frequently in these people. 
And so obviously this is a really important thing, like how cells sense oxygen. But what's sort of like the broader remit of this? How will this impact society? It seems like there are a lot of varied implications for the impact of this research. Um, just for example, people are looking into whether they can harness this effect to stop how quickly cancer tumours grow. Moving on then, the next prize was in physics, and this was about the evolution of the universe. That's right. This prize was a little bit interesting because it's split between two arguably maybe quite different aspects of the field. One was about exoplanets and specifically the first discovery of an exoplanet around a sun-like star. And the other one is for some very wide-ranging theoretical cosmology. So let's start with the exoplanet part of the prize then. Who were the winners here? Well, that half of the prize was split between two astronomers, Michelle Mayer and DJ Kulo. And what they did was they discovered an exoplanet orbiting a star called 51 Pegasi. Uh, that was the first exoplanet seen around a sun-like star. But since then, that has really kicked off a whole field of exoplanet research. And now there are thousands and thousands of exoplanets that we're aware of. And it's a very exciting, growing area of astronomy. Everything from gigantic, super hot gas giants all the way down to now we're starting to see more and more rocky planets that possibly are even more Earth-like. And the second half of the prize went to a Canadian, which I'm sure you'll be happy to hear. Very exciting. Yeah, we're two for two uh, Canadian Nobel physics winners. So James Peebles is a cosmologist who has done incredibly influential work all about the evolution of the universe following the Big Bang. So things like how the cosmic microwave background evolved, how all of the kind of chunks and bubbles and blobs that became the galaxies and the clusters that we know and love evolved from this fairly uniform initial condition. So from the emergence of the universe to the modern day, the Chemistry Nobel Prize is about something that the modern world is pretty much dependent on. Absolutely. It's probably something every listener has in their pocket right now on their mobile phone. It's a lithium-ion rechargeable battery. So who are the winners for this important prize? Well, the prize was split three ways again here to John Goodenough, Stanley Whittingham and Akira Yoshino. And they did work over many years separately, uh, really coming up with the idea behind lithium-ion batteries, developing the technology that made them possible and affordable in a commercial sense, and finally really implementing them so that they're at the stage where they are today, where they can power all sorts of renewable energy, as well as the gadgets that we all know and love. Yeah, and this was sort of an incremental improvement of this technology. It started with Whittingham, and then the others expanded on this. Yeah, it's interesting. Whittingham actually was working for the oil company Exxon back in the 1970s. And Goodenough has written in Nature about how at the time uh, there was an oil crisis, there was really a desire to get away from fossil fuels, and there was an understanding that if we're going to move to renewables, we need a, a battery to store that energy that comes from wind power and solar power. So it's really interesting how that work back in the 1970s really has a lot of echoes in the modern day. So those are the winners for the Nobel Prizes for Science this year. And uh, listeners may be aware that there's something in common with all of these. Well, it is an issue that the Nobel Prize has traditionally been awarded to a lot of men. And it's something, especially in the last couple of years, that uh, the Academy that awards the prize has been looking into ways to find a more balanced role of nominees 
and that will lead to laureates who more accurately reflect the makeup of the people who are doing research. Yeah, there was a new story a couple of days ago about how the Nobel Committee has made sure there's more nominations for women, but it doesn't seem to have translated into winners. Well, I should say there's no quota or anything like that for women, so they're not ensuring that there's more nominations for women. But what they are trying to do is change the makeup of the group that nominates people and also to really just explicitly prompt those nominators to think about things like diversity of country of origin, field of research, as well as gender and national origin and all that kind of thing. Thanks, Flora. Listeners, you can find out more about the new laureates and their work over at nature.com slash news. But that's not all. We've also been able to catch up with two of the new laureates. Didier Kerlo, who won for physics, and the oldest ever Nobel Prize winner, 97-year-old chemistry laureate John Goodenough. You can find our chats with them as podcast extras in the same place you found this show. And that's all for this week. If you have any thoughts about this show or any of the last 600 episodes, or you just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Alternatively, you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. And to celebrate the 600th episode of the show, we've put together a little Spotify playlist of some of our favourite episodes. And uh, we'll tweet out a link to that later in the week. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Howell. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.